Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing song for the dreaming of the world That we may dream as one With every voice, with every song We will move this world along Your very special treat today for Spirit in Action is that Peterson Toscano is sitting in for me and you could hardly have a better host. I've had Peterson on as my guest twice for Spirit in Action, but that vastly underrepresents the incredible work he does and the incredible talent he brings to that work. While Peterson is competent to comment and critique on a number of issues, today is all about climate change, his leading concern this year. If you visit the NordenSpiritRadio.org website, you'll find, under our lists of programs, the monthly series that Peterson is now doing called Citizens Climate Radio. Given Peterson's perfect storm of talents, theatrical and comedy and a piercing intelligence, Citizens Climate Radio delivers not only important news, but enjoyable and compelling information. So, Northern Spirit Radio friends, please enjoy your hour with Peterson Toscano and his guests for today's Spirit in Action. Hi there, and welcome. My name is Peterson Toscano. I am thrilled to guest host this episode of Northern Spirit Radio. In the past, I've been a guest, but I get to add the programming for today, so that's really exciting. In addition to being a comic, a Bible scholar, and a human rights advocate, I'm also the host of a monthly podcast. It's called Citizens Climate Radio. Now, I look at climate change from some pretty weird angles, including using comedy. Sure, it's a serious issue. I get it. But on my show, we never try to scare the snot out of people. Rather, we're exploring solutions. And I highlight people's stories, and we also use art to help make sense of our rapidly changing world. I produced the program for Citizens Climate Education and decided to share some of what I'm doing there with you here today on Northern Spirit Radio. In the first half of today's show, I share with you the stories of three women, ages 17, 33, and 51. They're from the USA, Canada, and China. By hearing them, I think we can unpack a popular talking point that's used among many environmentalist groups. It goes something like this, let's act on climate for the children, and for future generations. I've been wondering about this talking point. Does it actually work? And what do the children have to say about it? Then in the second half of the show, we get downright artsy. In addition to sharing some climate change comedy, yeah, you heard me right, comedy about climate change, I chat with ecologist and poet Lillis Mellon Ginyard. She's been writing poems about parenting in a time of climate change. Whenever I talk about this challenging topic, I lead with hope and point to solutions. So, let's dive right in. Back in 2012, I grew alarmed about climate change. 
Obviously, I had been aware, but one day something clicked for me. It was like I had been in a sleeper cell. Suddenly, the right words jarred me awake. I became activated. Of course, many messages build up to lead to that magical moment. I imagine a lot of us have had that epiphany when we almost instantly become aware and alarmed. In fact, a lot of climate communication tries to land on just the right words and talking points that will wake people up. One of the most common attempts sounds something like this. Climate change is serious. We need to think of the children. We need to act right now so that our children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren do not inherit a broken planet. I know this approach has moved many people deeply. I hear their testimonies about their own conversion experiences that led them to climate groups and climate actions. When it comes to climate communications, though, there is no silver bullet. While this talking point has deepened the commitment from already eco-conscious parents and grandparents, this one actually bounced right off me. I mean, I have nothing against kids. Some of my best friends have kids. But when it comes to talking about climate, I literally have no personal DNA in the game. I don't have children or the prospect of grandchildren. And while I am not insensitive to the children around me, the appeal to future generations doesn't move me in the same way as it might for people with their own offspring. But there is another possible problem in focusing on future generations. It could give us the impression that climate change still hasn't happened, but will eventually raise its ugly head sometime down the road. In highlighting the problem of CO2 and our atmosphere, the president made it clear, quote, This generation has altered the composition of the atmosphere on a global scale through a steady increase in carbon dioxide from the burning of fossil fuels. This pronouncement was followed up with a chilling statement from the National Research Council. We now understand that industrial waste such as carbon dioxide released during the burning of fossil fuels can have consequences for climate that pose a considerable threat to future society. The scientific problems are formidable, the technical problems unprecedented, and the potential economic and social impacts ominous. Now that sounds to me like a call to immediate action, to provide stability for earthlings present and future alike. And if those statements I just read sound like more of the same global warming jibber-jabber we heard in the build-up to last year's big Paris climate summit, here's something that will put it into perspective. That U.S. president I quoted who raised the climate alarm was not Barack Obama. It wasn't either of the Bush presidents. It wasn't Bill Clinton or Jimmy Carter. That call to climate action actually came from President Lyndon B. Johnson speaking in 1965. The National Research Council then took it a step further in 1971 with that follow-up statement released during the Nixon administration. So, exactly who are these children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren who are doomed to inherit a dysfunctional Earth and atmosphere unless we do something to fix it? Yeah, that would be me, <laughs> and most of you listening. As the old song goes, we are the world. 
We are the children. So I decided to talk to some of the children born since 1965. I wanted to hear about their own experiences with pollution and climate change. I needed to learn what these children and grandchildren are saying and doing. Meet Piper Christian. Piper is a 16-year-old high school student from Logan, Utah, who will enter the 11th grade this fall. She and some of her friends have jumped onto the climate action train. What does that mean? She is active in her local Citizens Climate Lobby chapter. In June this year, she spoke on a youth panel at the CCL International Conference in D.C. And in November 2015, she traveled to Paris, France, for the historic Climate Summit. I asked her about her own experience of waking up to the dangers of climate change, along with the realization that she has a part to play on this changing planet. This 16-year-old told me a story of a young person, even younger than Piper, who inspired and challenged her. For me, it was actually a 15-year-old girl from Bali named Malati. I met her at the Climate Summit. She told me that when she was 12 years old, she was devastated because the islands of her home were being choked by plastic bags. And so, as a 12-year-old, inspired by the nonviolent resistance of Gandhi, she went on a hunger strike, which convinced her government to ban plastic bags. What I saw from that is I had come to the summit with still a pretty big sense of hopelessness and feeling like as an individual, there's just, or a citizen, there's not much I can do. And then here I meet this humble 12-year-old girl that changed a nation. And it made me realize that, that not only, not only do citizens have power, but also that when we reach out to youth and when we get them involved, we can accomplish miraculous things. Piper is from Utah. I'm not sure what image you have of Utah, but I've taken the train through this beautiful U.S. state, and I see majestic mountains, wide open spaces, and so much nature. No surprise, living in Cache Valley, Utah, Piper spends a lot of time outside in nature. But it isn't always pleasant. I grew up on a canoe, on a bike, you know, in canyons and on rivers and experiencing wildlife. Just have such a love for my valley and my and my home because we live in this mountain valley. At, at the same time, because of the car pollution and agriculture, we have some of the worst air pollution in the country during the winters. I mean, I grew up not being able to go outside for recess because it would hurt our lungs. Kids would have coughs if they ran outside for too long. Uh, even in high school, we, we don't have access to the track during the winter because it could cause exercise-induced asthma. I think that's what made me realize that it's affecting people at the personal level. And then going to the, the International Climate Summit and just talking to people who at the community level are just facing these hardships. And, and that's what really brought me in at the personal level was, was not just this kind of abstract, oh, we have this global cri- climate crisis, but seeing my own community hurt and then talking face-to-face with people who had similar trials and realizing this almost global family with this, this common problem. Piper shared with me good news about how youth are organizing in her community and globally. At a regional gathering for citizen volunteers advocating climate solutions, Piper saw firsthand the enthusiasm and commitment of her peers. 
After everyone went home, those kids stayed after the meeting. We were just so encouraged and excited about this cause that we thought we need to create a youth network around our state and start supporting each other. And we've stayed in, in touch and prepared a lot for this conference. So, I mean, that just touches upon just globally and also locally the way youth have so much initiative. Having all these young people engaged in climate advocacy gives me great hope. I mean, it's one thing to appeal to adults to act on behalf of future generations. It is quite another when a young person comes face to face with an adult, be they a parent or a lawmaker, and says, I need you to consider my future and what we can do to keep this world safe and stable. Here's an example. In a U.S. federal court, 21 youth plaintiffs ages 8 to 19 are attempting to sue the U.S. government and the fossil fuel industry on behalf of their own futures and future generations. According to Forbes magazine, quote, the lawsuit alleges that the federal government is violating the plaintiff's constitutional and public trust rights by promoting the use of fossil fuels. The complaint explains that for over 50 years, the U.S. government and the fossil fuel industry have known that carbon dioxide from burning fossil fuels causes global warming and dangerous climate change, and that continuing to burn fossil fuels destabilizes the climate system. Now, after the lawsuit was introduced by the youth, the U.S. government and the fossil fuel industry attempted to block the motion and dismiss the lawsuit. But after hearing the young people's case and seeing them in the courtroom, the judge ruled in favor of the youth, so the lawsuit will proceed. Yes, adults, considering the needs and lives of future generations can be powerful motivation to act, but as Piper explains, having youth involved in the process is essential. So I asked Piper about the magical climate talking point. We need to pursue climate solutions on behalf of the children and the grandchildren. As one of these children, she offered the following advice. And while this is so valuable, I think we may be missing the point. Because this is not about working for kids. This is about working with kids. Because we have to give us opportunities to demonstrate the leadership that we'll need when you guys are gone. This is not about working for kids, but working with kids. Yes, Piper, I hear that loud and clear. In my quest to learn from children affected by fossil fuel pollution and climate change, I spoke with a woman who, as a girl growing up in China, encountered extreme levels of pollution. Meet Clara Fang. Clara is a 33-year-old with many accomplishments under her belt. Her degrees, degrees, include a Master of Environmental Management from Yale and a Master of Fine Art and Creative Writing from the University of Utah. A creative writer who is also a climate advocate, Clara now lives in Pennsylvania. She is active in a variety of groups that seek to make the world a better place. Her own personal story, in large part, influences her engagement in the world today. At age nine, she and her family left China and came to the USA into a whole new environment. 
as a, a child in China, I lived in an environment where there was a lot of pollution and really not much nature. I'm from Shanghai, which is very urban, and I really thought that was the entire world. You know, I've never taken a trip to a forest or a beach or anything. And then I came here, and I was in a suburban environment, but it was it was still so astonishing to me, like the amount of nature that we have in this country. Like I had never seen a blue sky until I came here. Clara's American teachers were passionate about bringing children into nature. As a binational person, she quickly developed a sense of the wider world and her connection to it.、Um, I think a lot of people they they really. See where they're from as as a part of their identity, or where they're living, their community as part of their identity. And when you're someone who has moved around a lot and has been and has lived in very different cultures, you can't so much attach to any culture. And I really get the sense of the earth as being our community, and that the commonalities are greater than the differences. And wherever we go, it's really the earth, the ecology, the biology, which is where we all come from. Clara was concerned about pollution that was changing the weather so dramatically, but at times she felt powerless and hopeless. It was easy to be cynical about what's going on in government and to feel kind of hopeless about how to solve this huge problem when you're just this little individual. Clara began to question the approach that she had always been taught. This is a big problem that requires big solutions. And I think a lot of the emphasis in the environmental movement has been on individual behavior change. More and more over time, you know, just realize how that's not enough, and we need to act collectively, and we need to have systems change. For Clara, that meant getting into U.S. congressional offices to lobby for a price on carbon, so that people have to pay for the right to pollute. Carbon fee and dividend is a systems change, and and acting at the the level of national and international legislation has the the power to affect everyone. You know, and and that's what I think we we really need. So I'm really glad to be a part of it. I want to bring one more voice into this discussion of climate action for the children and for future generations. Meet Kathy Orlando. Kathy is from Canada. She was born in 1966, a year after U.S. President Lyndon B. Johnson raised concerns about carbon dioxide pollution altering the Earth's atmosphere. Kathy, along with her husband and three daughters, lives in Toronto. As the national director for Citizens Climate Lobby Canada, Kathy works full time advocating for climate solutions. She meets regularly with members of Parliament and organizes citizen volunteers all over Canada. Kathy explained to me how her childhood shaped her. She grew up in the late 1970s, early 80s, very close to the U.S. border. And as a child, pollution and one woman's response to it played a powerful role in how she sees the world today, 40 years later. I grew up in Niagara Falls, that's Niagara Falls, Canada, and we got mostly USA News. So I was nine, ten, eleven years old when Lois Gibbs led the fight at Lake Canal. And I watched the news with my mother. My mother always watched the news. That was our thing. For over 40 years. Hooker Chemical Corporation dumped over 80 toxic substances at Love Canal, and the poisons are now seeping into the homes built over the deposit site. Well, we have got abnormalities in our chromosomes, and、uh, we've known it all along that 
On our street alone, there has been already eight cases of cancer on a 15-house street. I learned from Lois Gibbs, governments and corporations don't take care of people. People take care of people. So it's up to us. That was a big lesson for me. As a young adult, Kathy decided she needed to do something significant to address environmental issues. This drive influenced her studies. I went to university, studied science, not because I loved it, but I felt that somebody who was going to becoming a responsible, wise age in the 21st century, so this was back in the 80s, I needed a science education for what was coming. Kathy then did what many college graduates do. She lived her life, found employment, and settled down into family life. But then something happened that jarred her awake to the reality of the world around her. And then in 2007, I got pregnant at age 40. I was listening to the radio. I was working from home, and I heard on the radio the summary report for the fourth report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and I was very pregnant, and I heard that if we keep doing what we're doing, this planet was going to be a very difficult place to live on 40 years from now. I saw everything, every gain every woman has ever made in their life dissolve in my mind. This climate change will just rip apart our society. And uh, I have three daughters. This was my third one I was pregnant with, and I made a huge commitment to her. I was going to do whatever I could. Now, what sort of response matches the intensity of a concern like this? We often feel the need to connect with others who carry a similar burden. In Kathy's case, she joined Al Gore's organization. In one year, she gave over 100 presentations in hopes of waking people up to the dangers of fossil fuel pollution. But even among those who were concerned about climate change, she grew exasperated by what already started to sound like defeat. At a training session for climate communicators, she blew up. I think I was a little sassy because everybody was whiny. Because <laughs> people were saying, oh, we can't, the corporations, you know, the whole wah, wah, wah. I was like, why are you here? Why are you here? This problem is solvable. We just got to unite. There's, this is solvable. It's just all we lack is political will. I even knew it then. The politicians needed our help. The politicians needed our help. And for a time, things seemed to be moving in a positive direction in the Canadian government. A pro-climate bill was introduced in the Senate. Kathy believed her lawmakers would do the right thing and act on behalf of the people and the climate. Fast forward to November 2010, we had a pretty promising climate bill go through our lower house, and it got killed in the Senate. First bill in over 90 years to get killed in the Senate. It was devastating. Perhaps it was in part the influence of women like Lois Gibbs during Kathy's childhood who provided an example of a fearless, relentless advocate for change. Likely it has something to do with Kathy's own relentlessness. Instead of running away from the fight, Kathy pressed in further. And I went and spoke with my minister, two Native elders, and made the decision to quit my job and do this full time until I, something was real could happen. I ended my interview with Kathy Orlando by asking a question about the future and her legacy. I asked her to imagine her 80th birthday 
Imagine the efforts of countless volunteer advocates that paid off. Canada and the rest of the world heard the voices of citizens and responded with meaningful policy change that led to a dramatic transformation in how we get our energy. We were not out of the water, but emissions dropped and a great transition from fossil fuel pollution to alternative energy sources occurred. At her 80th birthday, she is being honored for her many efforts as a climate action figure. Her youngest daughter comes to the podium to say a few words about her mother and the many ways she contributed to changing the world around her. I asked Kathy, what might your daughter say? She did this for me. She already knows that. When we had our first conference in Canada, it was really stressful because we have no money. No, like we're doing this all on a dream. Anyways, I had this breakout room, little cloak room that I would go hide in just to get myself together. She was only five years old, six years old at the time and she ran into the cloak room, climbed up on my, on my lap and pulled my face and said, you're doing this for me, aren't you, mommy? She already knows, she knows. So I did it for her, did it for all the children. Thank you to Kathy Orlando, Clara Fang, and Piper Christian for sharing your thoughts with us. And before we head into the art house, I want to share one more thing that Clara told me about poetry. She is a poet herself. And when we spoke about China, climate change, and collective action, she shared some thoughts about the role of the poet. Poetry helps us process the experiences that we have around us. When, when I read poetry, it's, it's so striking to me because it's, it really digs at you know, why we're here, why we want to be here, uh, and that we can find so much joy and so much connection in the midst of a lot of chaos. I find that poetry really brings that and it reminds us of what it means to be human. So that brings us to the art house. Uh, after our break, we're going to go into the art house. When I look at climate change, I see it obviously as a scientific issue. I see it as an environmental issue. And I see it very much as a human rights and social justice issue. But I also see it's a matter for artists. The role of an artist on a changing planet cannot be underestimated. It's through art that people can begin to grapple with some of the huge moral and existential issues of our day. And and not only serious art, but also comedy, which I think actually can be quite serious. Uh, but, but these things are really essential tools to help humans to, to understand the times that we live in. So after the break, you're going to hear some samples of artful responses to climate change we'll start it off with a little bit of comedy we'll move on to some poetry and then um well more comedy so we'll be right back after the break
I hope you're all enjoying and learning from today's Spirit in Action host, Peterson Toscano of Citizens Climate Radio. And we should note that Peterson's program is featured on the NordenSpiritRadio.org website, along with all of our programs for the last 11 and a half years. That's the site where you'll find more info about and links to all of our guests and a place to comment about our shows. Please do comment when you visit, and you can spare us the need to hire a psychic to read your minds. There's also a donate button, which is the way we fund this full-time work. But a higher priority, in our view, is supporting your local community radio station, an invaluable source of alternative and local news and music. Start by donating to them from your hands and from your wallet. Now, back to more insight, entertainment, and information from our guest host for this week, Peterson Toscano of Citizens Climate Radio. Today I introduce Marvin Bloom, a comic creation of sorts. Marvin is a climate advocate, but he has some unique ways of looking at the world. In this monologue, he tries to make sense of climate denial. Hi everyone, my name is Marvin, Marvin Bloom, how are you? I'm from the Long Island chapter of the Citizens Climate Brigade that my partner Tristan dragged me into. Lots of people wonder about their friends, co-workers, and family who are climate skeptics, or the awful term, deniers. Tristan has his own theories about this, but for me it confuses me. I mean, you have 97% of scientists who say that the climate is growing unstable and human pollution is the cause. That's like saying cigarette smoking doesn't cause cancer. Yeah, tell it to your lungs. But I've been thinking about denial, all kinds of denial. Now, whenever I hear someone adamantly denying the reality of global warming, I remember Kubler-Ross. Yeah, you know, the people who identified the five stages of grief. I don't know if Kubler-Ross is one person or five or whatever, but they say that when something big happens to us, like a loved one gets diagnosed with something awful, or we find out we won't retire on time or graduate on time, or, I don't know, Lady Gaga comes out normal, we may go through stages of grief. It's not the only model for looking at grief, but it makes sense to me. We need these stages to process the loss until we can get to the place where we accept the reality of what is happening in our lives. According to Kubler-Ross, what's the first stage of grief? Denial. Denial. We're like, no, Ma can't be sick. She's never been sick a day in her life. She's too big to fail. We fight against it and deny the possibility that something so terrible is happening to us. Denial is a way we react to a potential big change in our lives. So here's what I think about these people who are so intensely denying the reality of global warming. They are literally freaking out because they know in their heart of hearts, in their guts, that if climate change is real, well, it changes everything. So it can't be real. And I don't like it when people mock people who are struggling to accept the reality of climate change. Because at their core, I feel that genuine climate skeptics grasp just how dire the situation is. But their minds and hearts rebel against the reality. But I truly believe that after all the denial, they're going to quickly work through the other stages of grief. The anger, bargaining, depression. Yeah, it's going to get messy. Until they come to a place of 
acceptance. Not accepting that it's the end of the world, but accepting that we have a huge problem and we need to be involved in the solutions. And think about it. Suddenly, when all that negative energy they put into their denial gets redirected and harnessed to make a difference. To me, there is something honest about the climate denier. Emotionally honest, even when they get their facts all screwy. Oh, and listen, they're not the only types of denier out there. Most of us are some sort of denier or working through our grief about our planet, which is seriously sick. But there is one type of denier I have no patience for. The hope deniers. They're like, no, we've gone too far. We can't do anything about global warming. And that's exactly what they do. Nothing. Well, except terrify people. And there's another group of people who are often called climate deniers, but that's the wrong term for them. They are people who know all about climate change, probably agree with the science, yet for years they have organized and funded campaigns to deceive the public. To me, these people are not climate deniers. They're outright liars. And nobody likes it when someone lies to us. But if I'm honest, and why can't I be honest with you, right? I, too, am in denial. Well, I don't suffer from climate change denial syndrome. I wish the whole thing were a hoax, though. Uh, No, I'm alarmed about global warming. You know, to be honest with you, I am skeptical about something completely different. I am. A cholesterol denier. Yeah, I don't believe cholesterol exists. It's just a health scare manufactured by those grant-hungry American Heart Association doctors and those Quaker Oats people. Now, my partner Tristan says I'm wrong about this, and I'm refusing to make any changes in my life. But, you know, he has his own healthy agenda that he's trying to shove down my throat. But that's another story. In the Art House today, we hear from poet Lillis Mellon Ginyard. Lillis is a wonderful hybrid of a professor who has taught ecology, creative writing, women's studies, oh, and rock climbing. She lives with her husband and two children in rural Pennsylvania, where she teaches at Mansfield University. Her work has recently appeared in Poetry Magazine. Lillis and I recently spoke. She says she enjoys rock climbing and biking with her husband, eavesdropping on her children and shaking things up in adult Sunday school. She also told me that being a parent in a time of rapid climate change has affected her outlook and her poetry. But when I had my children, and that was a little later in life, so I'd done all this work and I'd been an environmental writer and and taught environmental studies, but it changed the way I wrote, looked at the world and wrote about things and felt the immediacy of not just what do I do, but how do I prepare my children to live a happy life in whatever comes. And so that really started taking my poetry in a different direction and I think renewed focus of how do we raise children in a time of climate change? Wow, what a question. How do we raise children in a time of climate change? Lillis responded to that question with a poem. It is a type of poem known as a villanelle. It has 19 lines with two repeating rhymes and two refrains. You don't really need to know that to enjoy the poem. It was published in 2013 in the anthology Facing the Change, 
Personal Encounters with Global Warming, which is available at Tory House Press. The idea for the poem came to Lillis while walking with her son. He was two and a half or three years old at the time. Lillis sets the scene for us and then reads the poem, Darkness. He had on his new Thomas the Train shoes, and nowadays shoes blink. They have little lights in them, and it was fall, and we had just at that point where it was twilight enough at the five o'clock mark when we were walking home that he could see these new shoes blink. And so that's where this came from. He, the first line is a quote, and it's his line, and I heard the iambic pentameter, and I, that line haunted me. Oh, I should also say that this was written shortly thereafter Hurricane Katrina. The Darkness I can make the dark not dark anymore. His shoes blink red lights against the pavement. My son's hand in mine, his night steps are sure. Such confidence, such trust. Just what's in store for those unaware their future's been spent. I can make the dark not dark anymore. He thinks it's easy. Tell that to the poor folks unhomed by hurricane and president. My son's hand in mine, his night steps are sure. It's hard to keep my faith strong at the core when I know how bad the earth has been bent to make the dark not dark anymore, the hot more cold and cold more hot. Ignored consequences creep up with a vengeance. My son's hand in mine, his night steps are sure that I'm in charge. How to prepare him for how progress turned to global accident. I can't make the dark not dark anymore, my son. Hand in mine, your night steps sure. Thank you, Lillis Mellon-Ginyard, for that lovely poem, Darkness. You can read it for yourself in the anthology Facing the Change, Personal Encounters with Global Warming, available at Tory House Press. Do you want to discover more of Lillis's writing? Visit her blog at Tent of One's Own, www.tentofonesown.com. No caps, no spaces, tentofonesown.com. And for more of her poetry that explores parenting in a time of climate change, Lillis has a chapbook that just came out. The award-winning short book of poetry, Young at the Time of Letting Go, is available through Evening Street Press. I have prepared for you a comic monologue. I am an actor and a comic. Through the years, I've developed a cast of characters. Actually, I'm quite shy, but when I'm in character, I'm downright fearless. 
I've been thinking about all the changes we each go through from the moment we wake up to the reality of climate change to the place where we engage in climate action. So I decided to harness some of my own zany characters to describe my own transformation. So with that, I present to you the five stages of hot climate action. The first stage is when the penny drops and suddenly I realize just how serious climate change is. This is the freakout stage. It's weird, but my freakout voice sounds a lot like my dad. Holy guacamole, it's like the end of the world as we know it. Global warming is going to crush us. Drought, flood, pestilence, whatever that is. From the redwood forest to the Gulf Stream water, we're going to hell in a handbasket. After freaking out for a while, the pendulum swung a little to the other side as I toyed with denial. I, I never came right out of denied climate change, but I toyed with it. And in my head, this is what denial sounded like. Yes, no, I am concerned about the climate change, of course, but uh, perhaps it won't be a catastrophe. Uh, Siberia could use some warming. I mean, we don't know everything yet. I read something somewhere. Maybe they will advance something. This could just be another Y2K. But I could not drive away reality. So the guilt and shame kicked in when I realized that I was part of the problem. In response, I attempted for a time to purge my life of all greenhouse gases. So I changed all my light bulbs. I bought the really expensive, super efficient ones. Then I stopped drying my clothes in the dryer. Well, I also couldn't afford to because of all those expensive light bulbs. And after this radical vegan activist with really bad breath screamed at me, I became a vegetarian for about a week. But then it happened. The despair descended upon me. I realized that my individual efforts were pathetic in light of the size of the problem. But what difference does it make? I purged myself dry. No one around me seems to care. And even if they did lower their own personal carbon footprints in the sand, it's like a teardrop in the ocean which is quickly acidifying. The very roads they built for us are soaked in fossil fuels. The whole infrastructure is out of my control. It's like the trials of Job. Just curse God and die. Yeah, in my head, despair sounds downright biblical. (laughs) But then something happened. I met like-minded people seeking solutions, and I found hope. And even after this Brexit vote recently, my hopeful voice sounds slightly British. We live in extraordinary times. So much uncertainty, dangers, and fears. But this is not our first rodeo. Our ancestors faced myriad challenges together. The Great Depression, World War II, they learned an important truth that we are discovering today. We are not alone. We have each other to comfort, to encourage, to join our voices together. And together, dear friends, we shall do the extraordinary.
So that's a sample of the art house. In addition to the art house, in every episode of Citizens Climate Radio, I offer a monthly puzzler. Now, these are not quizzes about climate science. Rather, we look at scenarios in which we are called on to talk about climate change. I present the scenario and listeners write in an answer or leave a voice memo. This info and wisdom sharing is my favorite part of the show. So for Northern Spirit Radio, I have a recent puzzler for you and some of the excellent answers I received. We have come to the third and final section of our program, The Citizen's Climate Puzzler. Last month, I introduced you to Claire, who at a party expressed her concern about climate change. She then added, but I really think there are much more pressing issues that we need to address. I asked, how might you respond to Claire in a way that opens up the conversation? See if you can offer an answer that affirms Claire while getting her closer to climate change. Well, I received so many emails and voicemails with answers to the puzzler, and honestly, I can say they were all really helpful and insightful. I also saw a theme emerge in many of them. So first, thanks for the many responses from all over the place. Liz Fisher in California, Andres Forno in Chile, Ryan and Frankie in Tennessee, Paul Thompson in the Twin Cities, Vicky Paul in American Samoa, Sabrina Fu in Maryland, Sid Madison in New Jersey, and a lot more. Thanks for all the voicemails and the emails. So how do we respond to Claire, who's concerned but thinks there are bigger fish to fry? John Whitmer wrote, quote, You're right, Claire. We need to address many serious issues, and we should press on as many as we can. What issues top your priority list? So John suggests we answer with a question and get to know a little bit more about Claire and what she's concerned about. One response from Down Under does something similar. Hi, Peterson. This is Rod Mitchell from CCL Australia. My response to Claire would be, that's really interesting, Claire. Please tell me what they are. I'd love to know. Then we can discuss whatever she comes up with. Expanding on these answers, Madeline Perra, the program director for Citizens Climate Lobby, explains. I would first want to find out what seems most important to them. You know, and, and come back with a question. You know, it's like, so what? You know, what are, what are your most urgent issues? And listen to that a little bit because there are a lot of things that people care about that are urgent besides climate. And then I think I would like to see if we can make a link. Maybe ask that question: Can you see anything, any common ground between what I'm caring about with the climate that seems so urgent and, and what you are? What are the connections between our issues? It seems like we're getting a consensus here, and I know this might seem like basic information for some people, but I actually turned to an expert who said that these responses that you're hearing are not the typical ones. I spoke with Dr. Joe Huckster. She is a postdoctoral research fellow at Bucknell University. As an environmental studies scholar, she surprised me by saying that she actually works in the philosophy department. She studies the public understanding of climate change science. Joe confirms that with these answers that you're hearing, we're on the right track, and that research backs up your answers. Claire's response is incredibly common. It's the kind of thing that you hear 
almost all the time. For a lot of us, our first instinct is to get sort of angry or to immediately, I want anyway, to immediately yell at Claire and say, how can you not think this is the most important thing that's coming our way right now? And what you may have noticed and what psychological research backs up is that this kind of response is actually more likely to alienate Claire than to bring her on your side. The more forceful your response is, the more likely it is that she's going to back up or even entrench herself further and try to fight against you. The first way that you can combat this or deal with this type of response is to start with something we call a grain of truth. And that is acknowledging something in what Claire said that you think rings true with you. And this can be really hard given some of the responses you can get. But with Claire, it's not too difficult to say, oh, wow, there are so many big things going on right now take so much of our attention, aren't there? By doing that, what you've done is sort of put yourself in her shoes and you've shown her that you heard what she said and you're listening to her. Then you can maybe ask Claire what kinds of things it is that she is concerned about, those things that she thinks are a bigger issue than climate change. You can actually then relate that or tie it back to climate change in some way. You can bring in how climate change may affect or exacerbate whatever it is that she finds most worrying at the time. You have shown her that you're listening to her, and then you've done something called framing, which is where you have made something that she cares about pertinent to climate change or made climate change pertinent to something she cares about, which connects it personally to her and may help her at least see why you think climate change is a big issue. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Madeline. And thanks to everyone who answered last month's puzzler. Well, the show is nearly over. Gosh, we packed in a lot, right? Uh, thanks to all my guests and to you for listening. This episode of Northern Spirit Radio was produced by me, Peterson Toscano. All of the music we use on the show is licensed unless otherwise specified. Special music for the Art House segment includes One Suite from the free 1920s collection on archive.org. Special thanks to Raul Diaz-Balamar for permission to use that beautiful piano piece from his album Musica para Poder Contra Verdad. If you like what you hear, you can listen to full episodes of Citizens Climate Radio at northernspiritradio.com. This show is available on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and Podbean. And if you want to contact me directly and share some of your ideas about climate change, about solutions, or if you have an idea for the art house, you can contact me easily enough by emailing me radio at citizensclimate.org. That's radio at citizensclimate.org. And in these last few seconds of the program, I wanted to end by saying something I say to audiences a lot when I speak about climate change at universities, churches, synagogues, Quaker meeting houses. I, I read a lot about climate change all the time. And my friends who don't, and lots of people don't, they'll ask me, so are you scared? Are you afraid of what you're hearing about what's happening in the world? And I know there's a lot of fear. Um, I know that climate scientists are struggling emotionally with some of what they're discovering about what's going on in the world. And, um, you know, there are times that I definitely feel anxious um, and concerned that we're not doing more quickly. I'm concerned that we 
are at each other's throats politically when we need to be working together. But honestly, the overriding feeling I experience on most days is not fear. When I think of the climate crisis, these massive changes happening so quickly on our planet, I feel, well, I just feel like it's such an honor to be on the planet right now, to be the people charged with working together to find solutions, to look after each other. I mean, it's, it's a lot of hard work ahead and it's going to be all hands on deck. No question about it. But I see this as an amazing opportunity, not just to avoid a catastrophe or multiple catastrophes, but really to think about how to make the world a better place, closer knit communities, more justice, more equality. I think those are things that we can talk about in a whole new way as we, we seek for big, bold solutions. If uh, you want to get involved with some of these solutions, um, Citizens Climate does a lot of this sort of things. We educate each other, we meet on a regular basis, and we have chapters all over the country. I'm grateful for the opportunity to be on Northern Spirit Radio, and I hope to come back soon with more from Citizens Climate Radio. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Hi, this is Elizabeth Jeremiah from the Elizabeth Jeremiah Global Worldwide Ministries. In Jesus, I had requested to be on this segment of the program, but it seems like we have rapidly run out of time. So I'd like to put a special request into Mark. Mark helps me next time. Could you make sure that I'm on the program? Because I want to talk about how the burning of fossil fuels is a generational curse. And I also want to reveal to you that I discovered a coven of ecofeminists. So please, have us back on the program right away. All right, God bless you. That's the end for this week of the incredible Citizens Climate Radio news and entertainment by this week's host, Peterson Toscano. We will be having him back in the not-too-distant future, along with a heaping helping of his theatrical and comedic talents. In the meantime, remember to check out the Citizens Climate Radio program postings on northernspiritradio.org. Thanks to Peterson and the folks we heard here today, and we'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice